Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy to welcome back Frank Schaefer. Thank you, Frank, for dropping back in graciously to Mindship Podcast. It is my pleasure. You know, it's not really a matter of graciousness when you're stuck at home in a second wave of COVID. This is like my big outing of the day. All right. <laughs> this is this has made your day then. <laughs> this has been, you know, I, you, anybody can get anything they want as long as it's slightly distracted. <laughs> Are you supposed to be doing something then? <laughs> no, I, I'm built, I'm rebuilding my barn every morning. And then when I run out of energy on that, I come back into the house and clean up a little. And then uh, morning and then evenings take care of my grandchildren who are sort of semi back in school. So we're sort of social distanced again. And it's all just gotten weird again. Mm. Oh, it is. Yeah. Life is very strange. Well, as we talked about last time, and by the way, I just wanted to say thank you also for talking to me before, because I've had some fantastic feedback about our conversation. Good. A lot of people said that they had no idea the full extent to which, well, certainly you and your famous father, yeah. they knew maybe some of that a little bit, but all the backstory about the pro-abort or the pro-life stuff and yeah. the evangelical stuff. So that was a real eye-opener, I think, to a lot of people. So yeah, yeah, thanks for a great conversation. Well, I hope people go back and listen to that again because or, or pass it on to folks, because it always amazes me, both on the right, the left, the secular, the religious world, uh, both have the wrong end of the stick on that whole Roe v. Wade development of legalized abortion, who was on what side, you know, what we were touching on before that I talk about in my yeah. memoirs and other places. You know, yeah. it's just so weird to left-wingers, for instance, to consider that evangelical leaders back in those days were pro-choice. Mm-hmm. You know, so both sides, as it were, always ready to demonize and generalize about the other side sort of get their minds blown when they find out who really was on what side. And then, of course, the arc to it becoming this litmus test is even more fascinating that way than, you know, evangelicals have always been on one side. So I always get a reaction from people not quite believing as if maybe I'm making this stuff up. Then they check a little bit and there are other sources that corroborate what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But um, it never seems to be out there in in terms of general knowledge. And you lived it. And that's the thing. So we said at the end of that episode, I was going to do two things, which I've done. I said I was going to read Crazy for God, which I've finished that. And right. then I said I was going to read Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. And I'm about 90% of the way through that. Good, I'm nearly good. done Have with it. Have you got a copy of Crazy for God there? I'm not testing you. I'm just wondering if you got one handy. <laughs> do I have to right. do a book report? <laughs> yeah, you have to do a book report. I'm going to ask you questions about pages 238, 152, 73. But I I think the subtitle of that book kind of tells the story. I don't know if you have it there to read it out. I can rustle one up otherwise. Yeah, it's something about, uh, well, okay, so I have the audible version. Okay, well, hey, you know, in your memory, this is then a a quiz. Yeah, how good is it? You know, how how your memory is. But anyway, you know, the subtitle is, is essentially that I grew up in the religious right, and the story is why I left that uh, and, and abandoned it, or almost all of it. Um, you know, to find myself in a new place. And so it's kind of two things. It's a personal memoir 
by a writer of fiction and nonfiction and literary nonfiction. So it's a, you know, it's a good read, I think, but it's also a history book. And that's why it's used in so many texts as the textbook sure. in so many colleges in terms of religious history studies, but also sociology and all, it has many things because of mm -hmm. course, since our family was such a pivotal, you know, part of the rise of the religious right in the seventies and eighties, which now shaped everything for our present with Donald Trump and so forth. There's a lot of folks who's, who use that book as a source mm -hmm. for their students and grad students to go deeper into the roots of the evangelical white evangelical movement as it now is. And if you want to understand it, you know, one way in is through this story I tell. Absolutely. Because I've read Crazy for God first, or listened to it on Audible, right? and then I started reading Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. I know they're not necessarily sequential, but in a way they are, aren't they? Because you pick up the second book with your mom passing away. That's kind of the natural flow of, yeah. of the logic, isn't it? Yeah. But what struck me, there's so many things that, that I wanted to talk about with Crazy for God, because, you know, as I mentioned before, a, as an evangelical, your father was hugely influential on my development intellectually. Right. I wrote my master's thesis on, it was a, an exegetical study on Acts chapter 17. So you got Paul's famous sermon. Well, there's, on, there's a couple thousand hours you're never getting back. <laughs> and how many tens of thousands of dollars I'm not getting back. Yeah. yeah exactly. So somewhere I've got an MA thesis that's about Acts chapter 17, Paul's yeah. famous sermon on Mars Hill. And your father's books were kind of a seedbed. And it was this whole thing about we need to engage with the culture yeah. so that we can speak about Christianity from an intellectual point of view an educated point of view and not have to be like these ashamed fundamentalists. And yet yeah. the weird thing about your father was, and I didn't know this, but he was raised a fundamentalist and then yeah. sort of his arc was going back to it at the end of his life. Yeah, actually yeah. my dad didn't convert to fundamentalist Christianity. He was raised in a secular home, very working class, uneducated secular home. His dad had a third grade education and went to sea when he was 12, you know, fought in Spanish American war, that kind of background, tough, mm. hard, gritty, thing, but he converted at 17 and under the tutelage of my mother, who he met soon afterward, he got into the huge 1920s fight between the liberals who were following the German higher critical uh, mm -hmm. path of theology, the first liberal theologians, and then um, people like Machen at Princeton and all the fundamentalist Christians who were coming out after the Scopes trial and so forth in defense of Christianity. And then the beginning of the evangelical movement with Billy Graham, he was forged by that. Then he, mm -hmm. he left that, came to Europe and took a much broader position. So that if you read, for instance, his books like Escape from Reason and The God Who Is There, agree or disagree with his theology or philosophy, you'd never peg it as from the right or particularly mm -hmm. evangelical in the fundamentalist sense. It would be more about intellectual uh, investigations of philosophy, trying uh, from an apologetic point of view, showing the failure of modern humanist philosophy in a way to bolster Christianity, which brings up a sort of a footnote to his interest in art and culture. You know, dad really did love Renaissance painting and the work of Bach and so forth and so on. But his rationale for getting involved and in being interested in art and culture was not that this had some sort of intrinsic value. It was so he could learn the language with which to communicate the gospel to what he regarded as the kind of hip 20th century generation mm. of people. So essentially what happened is, is when he, they started their ministry of Labrie and opened their doors to mainly university students, dad always very honestly said they taught him more than he taught them, certainly at the beginning in that 
he began to investigate the sources of their questions. So if someone came in and asked him about Albert Camus or Sartre or these existential philosophers or uh, you know, the works of Pablo Picasso, what did he think of this? He was already interested in those things, but unlike so many evangelicals that tried to redirect the discussion to personal salvation and whether the Bible was true, he made his whole apologetic argument as it were in a negative sense that 20th century and 19th century philosophy to replace Christianity with a secular point of view had failed and left people below what he called the line of despair, which oh, was yeah. people who did that. not, yeah, you remember all that. Oh yeah. So essentially his motives for his interest in philosophy and his interest in art and his interest in music, there was an ulterior motive. So it was, it was kind of like politicians in a way who drop their G's and speak in the vernacular when they're talking to a union working class mm -hmm. audience. Change, <clears throat> you listen to their tone when they're talking to an educated audience. It's often a little bit different. Yeah. Fitting in with the environment. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, he had all these hip people from the beat generation coming. And then after that, the hippies and the drug folks and all the rest of it, many on their way to talk to the Maharishi in India, et cetera. So, that's why he was giving lectures on Bob Dylan. That's why he was taking groups to Florence. That's why we had music weekends and art weekends. It was a very sophisticated form of evangelism. Exactly. And in that, other that's, words, in that's other words, you know, we're going to talk about art and see, you know, where, where what happens to people who go in this direction of existentialism or philosophy or, you know, the the abstraction of Pablo Picasso or the surrealists and all this. And then we're going to show that the Christian alternative to this is twofold. One, and here's the, here's the clever thing, we have a better answer, right? and it's true, and theirs is not. But two, on top of everything else, you know, you will have a happier life because these people are living in despair. They have no ultimate purpose. They have no destination and no answer. So you get two for one here. And mm. then there was a third thing, and here's the one that's harder to describe. You can help me verbalize this. Let me know if I've explained this right. On top of that, I'm sitting here talking about art and culture. So I am repairing the damage of the Scopes trial and the 1920s fundamentalist mm. debates by being cool and hip yeah. and together and connected and educated myself. See, not all Christians are stupid. We're talking about mm -hmm. Vincent van Gogh. We are talking about Pablo Picasso. We are talking about Salvador Dali. Yeah. We're talking about Sartre and Albert Camus. So all your preconceived yeah. conditions ideas about fundamentalism, forget them. Look, I believe the Bible's true. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe in the literal virgin birth. And look at me. I can also chew gum, walk in a straight line, eat with a knife and fork, <laughs> can you know show you on a map of Italy where the best Etruscan ruins are found in the mm -hmm. near Perugia. Uh, I can take you there. I can discuss their mystical relationship to Roman and Greek civilization. I can talk to you about the fact that Artifacts from Egypt were found in Etruscan tombs. Mm -hmm. Look at me. Not all Christians are dumb. So you yeah. have, I'm saying it again, three levels of my father's apologetic approach. One, they're all living in despair because they've got the wrong answers because they've thrown away their biblical heritage of Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian heritage. Two, we have the answers. And you'll, you'll have a happier life. Your marriage will go better. You'll be a better parent. You'll have a form to your life. You won't live in despair. But three, mm. look how cool I am. My hair is a little <laughs> yeah. long. I'm wearing yeah. a goatee. No offense to beards. 
Uh, hey, I'm none taken. I wear weird clothes. I'll take you hiking in the Swiss Alps. And while we're hiking, we can discuss uh, Bob Dylan's latest album and or, or we can talk about Woody Allen's philosophical statements in his early comedy movies. And mm. who else can do that? Last point. Why did all those evangelical leaders show up at Labrie when I was a kid? Because dad had a reputation for reaching the young people like nobody else. That's so true. the very people who were not going to Billy Graham crusades, who were, who were not in church, but who were in coffee houses in Europe talking about Albert Camus and on a trip to Paris where they were, you know, had a fellowship painting or writing, they did show up because mm. here's this cool guy in the Swiss Alps with a really fabulous view overlooking the Rhone Valley and the Don du Midi and all these other mountains. And his family is totally authentic. They don't steal your money. They let you stay for free. There's no ripoff here. He works on the corner of his bed in a rocking chair on a, on a tea tray. He doesn't even have a car. He's the real deal. Mm. Um, he's, he's rejected the wealth of the world. When he sells his books, he gives the royalties back to Labrie to further the ministry. He's not getting rich. He doesn't fly first class. He doesn't own a plane. He doesn't even screw around. He's the real deal. Mm. They're very nice people. And uh, instead of preaching at you, they have music weekends. And what happens at those music weekends? They do comparative studies between Bach and the Beatles. How can you beat that? Hmm. How that cool was is that? The deal. That was uh, the deal. And that's why it just yeah. caught on fire. And I don't know if I mentioned this uh, when we talked before, but you know, one of the weirdest experiences I had as a kid in terms of having this very cool evangelist father, forgive me if I talked about this in the last interview with you, uh, but it's, I think I put this in the book, was when I got a job with the light show at the Strobe Club down in Montreux. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if yeah. I mentioned this to you. I I no, it was in the book. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good footnote here too. But, um, you know, and I was a teenager at the time and 16, 17, whatever, wanting to, you know, cut my own path. And um, was the first job that I got in the J Montreux Jazz Festival was helping with the light show for the Led Zeppelin. And Jimmy Page, the lead guitarist, walked across the stage and I noticed he had a paperback in his back pocket. And I didn't dare talk to him because I was just part of a lighting crew and a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I saw, even though it was upside down and backwards, that it was the British edition of my father's book, Escape from Reason. So I went up to him and I said, excuse me. And he, what do you want? You know, and, um, uh, and I said, that book in your back pocket, where did you get it? And he says, well, this, and he pulls it out. I said, yeah, my, my father wrote it. Now, I didn't want to actually say it because I wanted to be this cool kid during the light <laughs> yeah. show, not an evangelist son. But it was too good an opportunity. Oh, yeah, you can't pass and it then, up. And he, he said, oh, I, Eric Clapton gave it to him last weekend saying it was a great read. Now, I say that because, and then I'll, I know you have more questions, but this is a good, a, good, a good little ramble here. The funny thing about that was, if you had taken a snapshot of that moment and said, 40 years later, the movement Francis Schaeffer helped build will elect Donald Trump because he's a far right politician appealing to neo-fascist white nationalists, hmm. it wouldn't compute. So my story basically in, in Crazy for God bridges that gap. How did we go from this to this? It's such a great story. It really is. And I think people absolutely should read it or listen to it on Audible as I did on the way back and forth to work. But Yeah, it's so one footnote I want to give you. You were talking about Crazy for God sort of leading into this little book of mine, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. One, one little footnote to that. And again, I don't know if I mentioned this in the book itself or not. Uh, the book's going to merge and I'm work I've been working for the last five years on another book. So now my mm. mind's in another place. But 
I started getting communications from Christopher Hitchens, the new atheist author, mm-hmm. that he had read Crazy Forgotten and really liked it. In fact, he called me, which I thought was great because I was an admirer of his writing. And he said, what a pity at the end of the book, you still describe yourself in some t- way as a person of faith. Why aren't you one of us? Because everything in your book leads you to get out of the movement. As it were, why do you go to church, a Greek Orthodox church, whatever it is? And, and I had a bit of a, uh, an email communication with him and we talked on the phone a couple of times. And in a way, why I'm an atheist who believes in God came out of that, which was mm-hmm. that I had a similar critique of some of the new atheists, Dawkins and Hitchens and these other people as I did of my own evangelical parents. And that is that they didn't leave enough room for uncertainty and paradox. So in a way, Hitchens was looking for another version of a born again experience. I was supposed to be born again to his view rather than saying, you know, uh, I had a more paradoxical view of spirituality in that, you know, we are, we are biological animals and here mm-hmm. we have these spiritual eyes we look at the wor- world through. You know, for me, that leads to a sense of paradox. For him, it was just, no, no, you, you follow the science, whereas my dad was, no, no, you, you have to follow Jesus. But in both, mm. it's sort of a leap of faith mm. because actually, you know, we are, we human beings, we are the contradiction. Nature's fine. You know, if you just look at the natural <laughs> world, nobody's having a problem with who they are. Mm-hmm. They have a problem with us because we kill them all. Yeah. Uh, They're not having to a problem. Things. We're the only, we, we are the only people, creatures with psychological issues about identity. We are the mm-hmm. paradox. So that the, the, the idea that we human beings make these sort of cosmological statements of there is a God or isn't a God, you know, I was trying to address that by having an ironic title, why I'm an atheist who believes in God, a sort of an oxymoronic title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very uh, ironically sort of, yeah, oxymoronic thing. Well, going back to what you articulated about your dad's model, how to live the evangelical life. I mean, when you were talking and describing that, it really it really resonated with me because that was basically my model too. That's why your dad was so hugely influential on me as an as a Christian. Yeah. Because, you know, going back to my thesis on, on Acts 17, you know, you got, that was my model. You've got Paul walking into Athens, Mars yeah. Hill. He knows the stuff. He knows the Greek philosophers. He knows what they're talking about. He can talk about them knowledgeably. He can articulate their philosophy to a bunch of philosophers who don't believe in this Jesus. They never heard of him, blah, blah, blah. And he's so clever at how he puts this speech or sermon, whatever you want to call it together, that he only brings up Jesus at the very end in kind of an oblique way, leaving, leaving them wanting more. And that was my whole thesis of how well, to evangelize. You know, and dad, you know, dad's so Pauline exactly right. method was exactly the same thing. Yeah. And, and he used the phrase, my dad often said, we have to use their language. We have to yep, use their, that's okay. it. And he even used the missionary example of saying, if you went to China without speaking Mandarin, how are you going to witness to anybody? Mm-hmm. So he'd take people to museums to show them what was influencing our culture. So you could turn around and influence it back. Yeah. And I remember he so ta- few he- Christians understood the yeah. dynamic of cultural influence. My father did. And I remember a big influence he had on me too was the way he would describe worldviews. How does a worldview develop? You know, you've got nihilism and existentialism. Sure. And he was kind of, I think, on the cutting edge of describing postmodernism. Maybe yeah. he didn't have that language in his day, right. but he was describing, he, he was seeing it, I think, developing in the West anyway and spreading, even though I don't think he ever used the word maybe postmodern in his yeah. books, but. But you know, you know so the thing is, is I look back on dad now and, and what he said, so much of his cultural critique actually proved to be true. So on sure. top of everything else, as a, as a cultural critic and as a prophet of where things would go, 
you know, that Americans were so dedicated to personal peace and affluence that in the end they would choose that over freedom. Hmm. He actually predicted how bad this was all going to go in the Trump years, if you like, in ways that many, many secular uh, analysts failed to do. He, hmm. he saw things very clearly in terms of uh, how human beings work, what political forces arise, what goes on. <clears throat> you know, his non-McCarthyite, non-shrill anti-communism all through the 40s and 50s proved to be totally true. You know, while the intellectual left had to back down and finally admit Stalin was a monster equally murderous as Mao Zedong was with Hitler, during the 60s, the cool people would never say that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were either an anti-Vietnam war activist who regarded America as the great Satan, or you weren't cool. I mean, that's a generalization. My dad yeah. never went there. My dad was a harsh critic of the left and the right, and really mm. called it in terms of where a uh, culture that lost its moorings would go. You know, someone else who, who made a very similar critique is the philosopher and writer Camille Paglia, the feminist writer, who's always from the left, but always annoys the left because she sort of tells the truth about the left. And she came up with a great phrase in a book called Glittering Images, which by the way, Glittering Images is one of the best books I've ever read on anything. And it happens to be mm. a critique of contemporary art, not from the point of view of someone harking back after realism, but just pointing out there's no there there in the sort of high power collecting Basel art fair type stuff. And she, she had a good phrase. She said, a culture can only be deconstructed once. Mm. And that was a very Schaeferian thing to say. Right. And that after that, everything is just an imitation of nothingness or nihilism or despair. You know, the first people who come up with it, like, you know, uh, Marcel Duchamp takes a urinal, puts it on a stand and calls it art to make the point. Okay. Mm -hmm. The next yeah. guy that comes along with the found object, it's just like the, it's like bombing the rubble after you've already knocked the house down. You make it bounce a little bit. And in these days, you make hundreds of millions of dollars out of it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so some person, you put a urinal on a stand and then 40 years later, somebody comes on 50 years later and puts a shark in a glass tank like Damien Hirst did. Mm -hmm. But basically, Camille Paglia is just laughing at Damien Hirst and all, all subsequent people for not understanding that once you've deconstructed the form, not just the technique, but the form of communication, you can't do it again. And, and still look original. Well, that's a very Schaeferian critique. Mm. So, you know, she would she would have sat in a Saturday night discussion with my father and agreed with 90% he was saying, you know, when he gets to this Jesus is Lord stuff, she would have jumped ship. But <laughs> now we got a problem. Yeah, now <laughs> we got a problem. So <laughs> I, was, I was with you right to the is, very end. <laughs> yeah, so the irony is if my dad had stopped with his, with his ministry in say 1970, he'd be remembered totally different mm. uh, than he is now. For instance, yeah. one of his last books in that era was Pollution and the Death of Man. He was talking about climate change and all the rest of it before anybody else was. I mean, Absolutely. go figure. And now evangelicals, as a matter of faith, reject it and don't even say that humans are mm. responsible for it. So, yeah. you know, my father was not the person the right wing makes him out to be because half his work contradicts everything they do. Mm -hmm. The left would never be able to actually answer him because half his critique of the left and the nihilism that's followed would be unanswerable because he happened to be telling the truth. Mm. And yet, and yet here he is partially responsible along with me, by the way, for yeah. this horrible year of American politics. And of course, that's the arc of the book. And I wrote it 12 years before Trump came along and got elected or mm -hmm. 10 years, I forget the date. 
but a long time before that. But in a way, it's sort of essential reading up to that point. Well, it's fascinating to me reading through the book or listening to it on Audible. You're describing you're growing up in Switzerland. It's this, you know, it's this existence that 99% of people can't even imagine, especially right. Americans. What's fascinating to me is that it struck me that, you know, you're kind of this footloose and fancy free. Your parents were so busy running in Labrie and having all right. these responsibilities. return from the break we're going to get back into this issue of frank schaefer's mother we've been talking a lot about francis schaefer of course but one thing we cannot overlook especially if you've read crazy for god is how big of a role edith schaefer played in frank's life as well and she was a huge figure in her own right she wrote books she was hugely influential so we're going to take a look at edith schaefer and then we're going to get into a little bit more of frank's time in evangelicalism we touched a little bit on this in our last podcast, but he's got some absolutely amazing stories about some of the evangelical and fundamentalist leaders that he met during his time in evangelicalism. And then we're going to end by talking a little bit more about his journey as an atheist who believes in God. We will have another episode with Frank coming up, which we will hopefully do next year, which sounds kind of crazy to say that, but it's only literally a few weeks away, 2021. We're going to go over his book, Sex, Mom, and God, which delves into his mother even in more detail and the whole thing about abortion, purity culture, evangelicalism, and his mother's role in all that movement. So look for that. If you can't get enough of Frank Schaefer, you need your Frank Schaefer fix. This episode isn't enough for you. What you can do is you can head over to the MindShift Podcast Facebook page where I have posted the latest MindShift Podcast Zoom call. We do these every month as part of our closed group. This is for Patreon supporters of the show. You can check out that video. I always post them about a week or so after we have these calls so people can watch them. So on the MindShift Podcast Facebook page, there is our chat. It was an absolutely wonderful chat with Frank. So you can head over and catch that. I just wanted to say, too, a huge thank you to the latest Patreon supporters of the show, I want to say thanks to Craig Tomlin and Joy Clarissa. These are the latest supporters of MindShift Podcast. If you want to help support the show, help me offset my expenses, the links to that are in the show notes. And in fact, not long after I finish doing this recording now, we're heading out to go visit my daughter. I'm going to drop by the post office and drop some lovely little gifts from North Wales, something you can only get here for Patreon supporters who support me at a $5 a month level. So that's a cool little way that I like to say thank you to people who support the show. So what's coming up in the next few episodes here on MindShift Podcast? Well, I'm working my way through the back catalog. I've got a bunch of episodes that I've already recorded. The one with Rebecca Drumsta dropped just the other day, so I hope you listen to that, especially if you grew up in a fundamentalist Bible cult, real high controlling group with undue influence sort of a thing. She and I talked about her backstory and then we got into the resources that are on offer for people who are looking to rebuild and reconstruct their life. So if you haven't heard that one with Rebecca Drumsta, I would really encourage you to go do that. Then we've got Seven. He's a rapper out of Jacksonville, Florida. I've been mentioning him before. That's coming up. Then I've also talked to Paul James Caden of the Mind's Eye podcast. And things are already in the works for next year. I've done a recording just the other day with Mark Potok. He used to work at the Southern Poverty Law Center. We did a recording about Doug Wilson, who is the sort of reconstructionist cult leader. 
He's got an empire up in Moscow, Idaho. I'm going to be launching a new series in the new year called Profiles of the Christian Right. And every episode, I'm going to devote to a particular person or organization on the Christian Right. I want to educate people as to what these people and organizations, groups are doing and what they've been doing. And so I've already been in talks with Catherine Stewart. She's been on the show a couple times. She's, of course, the author of The Power Worshippers and The Good News Club. She's been on here a few times already. We're kicking around now what we want to do in January. Also, you can head over to my MindShift podcast YouTube channel. This is another really cool thing that I wanted to talk about. Peter Montgomery and I, he's from the Right Wing Watch. We've already done one video, and we dissected and broke down the recent Jericho March that was held in Washington, D.C. on the 12th of December. This was an unbelievable thing. So Peter and I are going to be doing these about once a month. We're going to bring new stories, keep you abreast of what's going on in the Christian right, what's going on in the radical world of bizarre Christian fundamentalist evangelical groups. So I'm really working hard in 2021 to keep you abreast of the new developments, especially as Joe Biden gets sworn in in January. That's going to be a huge thing because, of course, that gives the Christian right an enemy, someone to vilify, a progressive, a liberal, a pro-choice president and vice president. So look for more content coming out about that. So some absolutely fantastic stuff coming down the pipeline. Look for that. So let's get on back into this chat with Frank Schaefer. We're going to finish up talking about his mother and the impact that she's had on his life as well as on the lives of so many other people. And then we're going to finish up by talking about the Christian right and where Frank is today. Day as an atheist who believes in God. And of course, your mother plays a huge role in the book as well. It's not just about Francis Schaefer, is it? Yeah. Your mother is a Absolutely. huge figure. She's a towering figure. Massive and so different than your dad. Yeah. You know, she seems so cultured. And so, but there was yeah. one of this, the things that kept striking me was as your mom was being, you know, you talked about her in the book. She loved the idea of these like really intellectual, super smart, he heavily educated people becoming right. Christians. Well, you know, we not can, only that, we need to look, win at her these three, top look at her three sons-in-law. Yeah. I mean, her whole point with Ronald McCauley is, hey, he's a Cambridge graduate. Right. U U Udo Middleman, he's a German lawyer. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. from a very high-powered political family. John Sandry, his father owns a factory that makes industrial sewing equipment. They're mm -hmm. very wealthy. He's very cultured. He's very educated. He plays cello on a professional level. And he was, uh, you know, the captain of the Swiss basketball team for whatever that's worth. But I mean, those were the kind of people that mom's daughters all married. Right. Top and, people, uh, I think she said. And so yeah. essentially, she was very class conscious, but it wasn't British upper class. It was education and culture. But then she would say things. She she would kind of have these Christianese sort of platitudes. That's what struck oh, yeah. me that she was obviously very intelligent, very educated, very class conscious, as you yeah. say. But then she would turn around and just say these sort of Christian platitudes. And you think, what's going on there? Well, she's what living was going in the on break. is that she, she was the daughter of missionaries to China, the China yes. in admission, and that never who never left and went beyond that. Mm -hmm. But what was so crazy about both my parents, and of course, it sounds like I'm being critical, but my kids will probably say the same thing about me, <laughs> yeah. the whole areas of life. But what's amazing is they had this tremendous leaps of growth in terms of culture and art, reaching out to people and everybody they knew and drop, you know, they could drop names. They knew everybody yeah. at one point. But on the other hand, when it came to their theology, it never got past the 17 and 18 year olds that met and married in a very conservative little Presbyterian church 
that had just split from another one for being liberal because they questioned something about scripture and were involved in massive battles, including legal battles, not personally, but as part of a movement with Princeton University when they fired Gratian Machen, who was a fundamentalist theologian mm -hmm. and replaced him with more liberal people. And then they both sort of reverted back to that. So when it came to discussions about culture, it was one set of things. When it came to compassion for people, it was one set of things. You know, they were open to gay people coming to Labrie and so forth, stuff that other evangelicals yeah. were never doing. And, and not to mention complete openness on race. You know, we at any given time in the summers in the, in the 60s, we would have 30 or 40 African students, not African-Americans, African-Africans, mm -hmm who were studying in places like Sofia, Bulgaria. They could travel to the West only to Switzerland because it was neutral. This is during the Cold War. And they would vacation with us and so on. My dad would say things like, I would be perfectly happy if my daughter married an African black man. I just want you to all know, you know, racism's horrible. And I mean, they put it all on the line. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, it went in a different direction. So that's one set. When it got to their biblical theology, they were old school, 1920s fundamentalists, born and bred and died that way. And then circled back at the end of my dad's life, fighting to get people fired from evangelical seminaries if their view of scripture was too weak. Yeah, that's And, what, that, and that kicked surprising. his own son-in-law out of Labrie and said he couldn't teach yeah. anymore when John Standry started giving Bible studies that were not, uh, you know, in line with the inerrancy of scripture. Yeah, it seems so counter to that version of this hip, yeah. cool Francis Schaeffer that you're describing back in the 60s in Switzerland with long hair and, yeah. you know, hiking see, up and down and all the rest of it. From dad's point of view, you could do all that. You could have all yeah. this freedom. But when it came back to, you know, allegiance to this set of faith rules, the scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you know, there was no room for deviation or other points of view. You mm. could not be in Labrie unless you signed on that dotted line. However, you know, if you got wow. some girl pregnant and you wouldn't necessarily be kicked out, like As I you did weren't. with my wife, Jeannie. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. If you were up in the woods smoking dope and dad was reaching out to you, they didn't throw you out just because you took drugs at Labrie because, hey, you know, Jesus came to save the sinners, didn't he? I mean, very compassionate and open on all that. So go figure. But when it got to the scriptures, toe the line, boom, 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 boom. Listening to your description of growing up, I mean, you were you were basically like a tearaway, weren't you? I mean, you were all over the place. They kind of just left it to your own devices. Absolutely. Your schooling was fragmented at best, you know. And yeah, you, yeah. And part of that, know? part of that is because they were so busy doing the Lord's work. They exactly. sort of didn't have time for their kids. The other part was philosophical, though, for which I'm very grateful. Mm. They yeah, really was... believed in kids having some freedom and the rest of it. They yeah. weren't that. But the other thing is, is just the biology of parenthood. They weren't anything like that with my sisters. Mm. So they grew up in a very strict fundamentalist Calvinist American home. My sister Priscilla had totally different parents than I did. By the time I'm get growing up in the late 50s and early 60s, the breeze, this kind of hip place, we're in the mountains, we're out of the States. My mother and dad are doing their thing. And, and, and then on top of that, as you know, as a parent, you know, you get more lenient with the younger ones. And by the time you get to number four and he's born late and it's your first you're pretty son, tired and your daughters are all, you're tired. I mean, just like, do whatever you want. Do your thing. Do your I, thing. I can resonate to that. Yeah, I was, well, I have five older sisters and then I was the youngest of all of them. So I was the last in line out of six of us. So by the time my parents got down to me, it was like, hey, you know what? Yeah. They were so strict with my sisters. I mean, yeah. they were very, 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 I mean, they were strict with me, but nothing 
like that. So that's how it was with me too. Yeah. You know, a little footnote, and believe me, I'm not trying to pitch another book, but you actually you would enjoy this, so I'll pitch it to you. But okay, after you do your Frankie Schaefer thing for a while here, you know, go read something else for a long time, and then if you ever want to double back and follow up, you were talking about my mother. Read my book, Sex, Mom, and God. Okay. Because for one thing, it's funny, but the second thing is that, in a way it really ties in with the big issues of the day and abortion and the rest of it, because you can't really understand the evangelical antipathy towards secularism until you get into sexuality, mm-hmm. whether it's the gay movement or oh, premarital yeah. sex or all these things. So when you, when you, if you want to understand where my parents came from, especially my mom and how she shaped people around her and all the rest of it, her view of sexuality and the, and kind of using that as a lens to look at the sexuality or lack thereof or ethics or however may you say in the evangelical fold it's a really revealing story mm. because um you can't understand roe v wade and abortion and the, uh, the opposition to it or gay rights any of these things unless you understand where it all came out of mm-hmm. and you can't understand that unless you look at people like my mother edith schaefer and see what she was teaching her children right. because we weren't an anomaly when it came to that millions and millions of people were raised on in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I, I have very few people who come to me and say, yeah, you know, your childhood was very similar to mine in when it's crazy for God, because it was rather unique with this cultural father who was a fundamentalist. I mean, there aren't that many combinations. When yeah. it comes to how my mother raised her kids in terms of what we knew about sexuality and her views of it, I've had thousands of emails and letters and people telling me when I've gone to speak, yeah, yeah, I totally get this. This is how, this is what it was like with my mom too, or whomever. Mm -hmm. So um, take a look at Sex, Mom, and God, because it's kind of the second half of the story in a way. Okay. On on the dynamic, on the kind of disconnect of human sexuality and kids and parents in the evangelical world. Well, they, they have that rubric, don't they? Traditional family values. And that covers everything you just described, isn't it? Right. What the home should look like, what marriage should look like. It's it's a the certainly not same-sex marriage. It's anti-abortion. You can put everything under that exactly. pro-family, traditional family values. Well, now going on into your, your adulthood, you go into this thing of, of getting into movies and producing stuff with your dad. This is a whole nother thing that I guess I was a bit unprepared for. I knew the basic storyline, obviously, because we had talked yeah. about it. But you've kind of got burned out, it seems like you see this sort of how the sausage is made within this evangelical machine but you're making so much money and having a pretty good living but it's like as you the further you go along you're getting more and more burned out and sickened by the whole the whole system what about you as you get out though i didn't see the the issue of you becoming a greek orthodox going to this greek orthodox i did not see that coming i thought like christopher hitchens you were just going to become an atheist and ex-evangelical and, and that well, was the I end sort of, of am. I mean, basically, if you read why I'm an atheist, you read in God, I am an atheist and I am an, I'm a very ex-ex-evangelical. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody would be less welcome in the fold than me, you know, whatever. Uh, but when it came to the Greek Orthodox thing, it was another deal. But I think, you know, people sometimes ask me who haven't read the book and who have too, if they don't find it clear enough, you know, why did you get out? What happened? The, the thing that's strange, and I don't know if I say this in the book as clearly as I might have, or if this has been further reflection on my part, but I think the real answer is that I began to compare the fast track of the big time American God business and the people who were leading it to the integrity of my own parents in their small ministry I grew up in. Right. So it, in a funny way, my quote, rebellion was much less walking away from my parents and how they raised me 
you know, people love to say, oh, he's angry. He walked away from his parents. He must have had a bad childhood. Obviously, they haven't given my book a careful reading because I'm not. Right. You know, my secular editor in New York, who knew nothing about us, said it's the most sympathetic biography about parents that I've ever read. He said, you're kinder, your parents than almost any biographer I've ever read who's going in a different direction. But evangelicals read it as a sort of a statement of treason and he's angry. You know, they love to say mm -hmm. you're angry, but actually I wasn't, it's not an angry book at all. Mm -hmm. But if some anger came in, it was that if I was angry with my parents for anything, it was that they never honestly told me just what a crappy shit fest the evangelical world that we were now becoming a more big kind part of was. Mm -hmm. In fact, if they had ever said to me, hey, Frankie, you know, the biggest test of your faith is going to be getting to know other evangelical ministries if you ever leave Labrie, because they're not like us. That would have actually prepared me better. But I thought there were, you know, good churches and bad churches, good being inerrancy yeah. of scripture. What they didn't tell me was that the entire evangelical structure in North America, then even, let alone now, was one massive money machine con game run by flakes and hypocrites unbelievable so the funny mm -hmm. thing is it was like the more you got to know these people it was like a look behind the scenes at the british royal family on netflix <laughs> yeah. uh, you know it's not a happy tribe now they'd be making some of that stuff up in the in 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 all of that but um the crown be that as it may the higher up i rose in this mob the more i realized that there was no there there that these folks who were making the big bucks and making the pronouncements were either destroying their families as Billy Graham did. So I knew his daughters, Gigi and mm -hmm. so forth and so on. And I knew his son, Franklin, who's now gone on to be this political leader. And I knew Ruth Graham, the mother, but I also know Ruth, Ruth the daughter. Ruth wrote me a letter after she read Crazy for God. And she says, I just want you to know you have told the truth. Now, she didn't wow. mean the truth only about the little mention of the Graham family. She meant this entire mess. Right. So they were either right, like right. Billy Graham, who himself had some integrity personally. He didn't become a billionaire cashing in on everything, but who totally sacrificed their family to the ministry. So all the stuff they were preaching was total shit when it came down to the fact that they weren't good parents. They weren't with their children. They left home. They were on the road 300 days out of the year. It was a shitstorm for a family to be raised in. It was yeah. a celebrity culture hanging around in the White House. They were crap parents ruining their own kids. So even on a biblical standard of being a good father, a husband of one yeah. wife, none of these guys measured up. They were shit parents. Yeah. Okay, All of them were shit parents. Yeah. Then you get to the next yeah. level of Pat Robertson and Jerry yeah. Falwell and these guys. They're shit parents. And on top of that, they are thieves. Actual yeah. con artists, people who actually sit down and consciously con people. Just give you one story out of that. Cal Thomas, who went on to become a Fox News commentator who wrote all kinds of books like Blinded by the Right or Might or something, and was the director of the Moral Majority for Jerry Falwell Sr. And he left. And after he left, he said, you know, Jerry Falwell was such a crook. And just one story he told in the early days of computers, when they started having lists that computers could keep above and generate, one of the first things Jerry Falwell's ministry did in the church and the college was to get obituary notices from around the country and cross-index them with donors to kick out letters to widows, talk about 
biblical style yeah. ripping people off. I mean, Predator. we're not supposed to fuck with widows, right? Yeah. Widows <laughs> and orphans. <laughs> widows and orphans. Yeah. He would actually, they had a program, early computer program on one of those big IBM, whatever, kicking yeah. cards out. Big as a house. Yeah. It would give you the address of a widow in Iowa somewhere, just lost her husband, Henry, last week. And she'd get a personal letter from Jerry Falwell within days saying, oh, I loved your husband so much. He always was such an inspiration to me. And in our last conversation, he was saying how, you know, when he when he goes to meet the Lord, he's going to he's going to make sure to remember my ministry so that the, the work we've done together already, because this is a former donor, can go forth. Of course. So he's shaking down widows, telling yeah. them that her husband wanted to leave me money. And basically, she's saying, well, you know, that it's not in the will. And he said, oh, well, that's fine, honey. You know, no problem. I'm sure you need it. I just wanted you to know what your husband's wishes were. There was an entire, this wasn't one person. This was hundreds. And oh, Cal said, he was so sickened by that, that he, he, he said, that's, the, that's it. Well, one other story about just Jerry Falwell. Back in the early days of his ministry, early-ish days, just after he's a segregationist, some people came and cut the guy wires that held up his big radio tower when you broadcast yourself before all the mm -hmm. cable stuff and all the rest of it. He had a national radio program with, you know, I forget how it was, 50,000 watts. Oh, you yeah. could get it everywhere. Huge. Somebody cut the guy wires and knocked his tower down. He went out and stood on the tower, put one foot on the tower, preached a sermon about how the, the homosexuals did this to me in revenge for my stand for the gospel. Send us money. What he failed to mention was, A, it wasn't the homosexuals. It was some disgruntled people in his own church that were getting back at him for some of the lies he was telling them. Second, and he knew it, the entire thing had been covered by insurance instantly, and they weren't in any debt whatsoever. It was all being rebuilt before he raised a dime. And third, he did this so many times with this same project that he raised the money on top of the insurance three or four times over that it would actually take by inflating the figure he was trying to raise. Mm -hmm. and Cal just told me those two stories. One last thing, you know, Jerry was an absolute bigot. Yes, he was. About gay people and so forth. You know, and told me to my face once in the in the anteroom of Thomas Road Baptist Church, where I was about to preach about the homosexuals. And he says, you know, if I had a dog that did what those queers do, I would shoot him. That was him. Wow. OK, so now I've come from Labrie that opens its door to anybody, exactly. loves people and so forth. These guys are making more in a week than my parents made in a lifetime. They're stealing all of it. Pat Robertson is becoming a literal billionaire, including owning a diamond mine in South Africa, okay? And I'm flying around in their jets on a speaking tour with my parents when I grew up in a mission when if we, we only had meat on Sunday. It was all casseroles because there never was the funds there. Mm -hmm. This is pre my father's books. Yeah. That to me was what ministry looked like. Yeah. So people say, well, what started the process of you, quote, getting out? Why did you get so angry? I didn't. I just compared what evangelical Christianity really is in North America to what I was raised to believe it was. And that started a process of cynicism and questioning that eventually led to me, as the evangelicals would say, falling away, losing my faith mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Had nothing to do with being angry with my parents. I still venerate and love them and I do in the book. Sure. It had to do with the lack of integrity compared to them I saw everywhere else. And also the shitstorm my own life was turning into being part of this massive con game and hypocrisy 
when yeah. I had always fashioned myself as an artist, writer, filmmaker, creative person, because of my father's influence of culture matters and all the rest sure. of it. Okay, so that was the beginning of my journey out, was yeah. just having to face what the real deal was that we were part of. Well, and there's a, a very poignant scene in the book where you describe you're about to go off and start this career, this filmmaking with your father, and you you were heavily into art, obviously for years as a, as a young man, and right. you said, I didn't know it then, but when I walked out of that room and left my studio, I would never touch these paintbrushes for 20, 30 years again. If I'd have known that then, I would have never done what I did. You know, I'm, I'm yes. looking at the picture. I can see the paintings behind you. Obviously, you've gotten back into art and you talk about that in the book. But, you know, what a poignant description. If I'd only known <laughs> what yeah. I was letting myself into. And then you talk about in the book, you know, years later when you were struggling to get by, you could have just gone right back into the, make a few phone calls, get some of those old contacts lined up from yeah. the old evangelical days you would have been right back all you had to do was well, say better a yet come back in a repent, right back repentant in. frame of mind <laughs> even saying, better i fell away and now you know the lord called me back in because i have i have absolutely a bad balance you know yeah i need to make some money here it's the real subtext <laughs> yeah struggling you know oh, I, I, I know <laughs> so much to think about i know you got to get going but one of the things oh, I no, i'm to... good here i'm still good okay in your book uh, why i'm an atheist who believes in god you talk about sort of the difference between American society and let's say godless Denmark, this secular right. society, and how they're they're more Christ-like than America, for example, even though America is supposedly yeah. a Christian nation. Yeah. How is that? And you're saying we got to redefine what this means to be quote Christ-like. If being yeah. a secular atheistic society, the quality of life is far better. They're far more inclusive yeah. than anything in a Christian America. What, yeah. how have we gotten to that to this point today in well, a Christian and America? Even look at Christian America in the Trump era, where the gun lobby and the NRA and Christians and evangelicals and God and guns it's all one thing. So, here you yeah. have a, here you have heavily armed white Christians, yeah, who say they're following Christ and are collecting AR 15s for the time when they, whoever they are, you know, rise up. Of course, most of it is thinly veiled racism, but some of it is just delusional paranoia. Yeah, but any way you theories. slice it, you know, any way you slice it, it's just so unattractive and cannot at anywhere compare with, you know, uh, even the UK or Denmark or any other European country that has a sort of a basic civilized baseline of, you know, not turning your home into a personal arsenal. They That's have all true. the civil rights and freedoms we've got. They've got the rule of law. You know, the Gestapo is not knocking on the door because everyone's not armed. It's all bullshit from the it right. Is. What happens if you don't have guns? National health system, care systems that actually work. People have medical care. There's mental health issues and so on. So you do have a homelessness, but it's not because there's no safety net there. You know, you look at this documentary on, I believe it's on Netflix or maybe it's Amazon, Code Black, which is about the community hospitals in, in California. And then a sort of a look at the fact that when you take off the map, the hospitals where they'll kick you out after they save your life because they got to, you know, binded you up, but then they're not going to do the operation to fix your arm because you don't have insurance. Yeah. Now you're down to a couple dozen community hospitals across the country. That's it. And you wait 15 hours to be seen and they can't do anything. And then people bitch because in the national health system, sometimes they don't meet their four hour limit on A&E uh, in the A&E room, the accident and, and emergency yeah. rooms. 
And you compare that to community hospitals in America where the average wait is 15 hours and maybe even, and that's average. People wait yeah, 24 hours to be seen and they're so sick in the community hospitals uh, mm-hmm. for non-life-threatening stuff. So yeah. it's it's iniquitous to the point of unbelievable. You know, the minimum wage is 7.15 an hour, 7.25 has been since 1990 something. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at this again and again, on and on and on and on and on. No baseline of compassion for anybody, not just the poor, for anybody in this kind of brutalized, armed, gun-toting society. Uh, you know, people shot down in cold blood. It goes on and on and on. And evangelicals try to defend this as somehow this is more Christian than these godless socialist countries, yeah. which they don't even understand what the word means. That's the that's the point that I'm trying to make in the book. It's not borne out by the, you know, the facts just don't bear out the claim. And that's before Trump. Yeah, I know that was before that. And they've they've had four years of having his ear. And w- how is the country any any better demonstrably? We've got a COVID pandemic that's it's been completely he's completely abdicated since the election. He's just disappeared. Well, all except, he's except done is rant Twitter. and rave that about yeah. our, our democracy's broken and I won the election. He's trying to basically stage a coup, isn't he? That's really what's happening. He's projecting all this stuff on Biden. And they're going along with the lie. All the polls show that 70, 80% of evangelicals believe him. Yeah, and they're promoting his conspiracy theories. And some of them are turning up armed at the homes of people who ran the election in places like Michigan. Michigan, yeah, I saw that. And threatening them. Yeah, what in the world is going on? And nobody's saying anything about it. Like, hey, you know, this is this. This might be a problem. This might be a problem. It is nuts, man. I mean, that's the thing is Christian America. I don't see how it is demonstrably better. I certainly don't want to live in a theocracy. You know, I know we talked about dominion theology last time. That's the end game for a lot of these people. It is. And for them, Trump was their ticket and he didn't get them there. Now they're just their heads are exploding because he's apparently on its way out. (laughs) What are they going to do with four years of Biden? They're blaming communist China, the ghost of Hugo Chavez. I mean, it's just, it's insane. It's gone nuts. (laughs) It has gone nuts. It's off the edge and barreling down to the abyss, but it really is. We'll just have to hope something happens. But in the meantime, this is a group of people who I don't think will outgrow this. I do not think their minds will change. You know, it's not going to be like these 60s radicals that when they were got a little older, came back and said, you know, we, we pushed it a little too hard here. You know, our, our rosy-eyed view of drug-taking and LSD and heroin, you know, it didn't liberate our minds. What we created is a lot of addicts and mental health problems. Maybe mom was right. There was some rethinking. Mm-hmm. And even the same thing with, uh, you know, the, the whole sexual revolution. I'm not talking about rethinking commitment to gay rights and this kind of thing, but mm-hmm. that promiscuity was sort of in and of itself a liberating great thing. No, no, yeah. a lot of lives were ruined. A lot of people totally regret that and came back even still from the left saying that was stupid. You know, the depth of relationships is much more important than just fucking around. Lots of people reconsider. I don't see any of these evangelicals reconsidering anything. They're just balls out, you know. um, Doubling down. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll forever would be the equivalent. It would be like finding someone that was still out there saying, you know, drop out, blow your mind, take some Take LSD and everything will be fine. There are no, there are no 60s people around like that still doing that. They learned something and said, you know what, this was a bit of a dead end. We were over idealistic. This was stupid. There are some real yeah. issues here. We still have. Okay, nobody on the right's doing that. I don't hear anybody saying we were wrong. We've made a mistake. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Nothing. There's no reconsideration based on facts or anything. 
And then when mm. it gets the big issues of the environment and stuff, nothing. Yeah, you crickets. know, it's a matter of faith with them. Trump won the election. Global warming is not real. It's all yeah. a hoax. It's all and, stolen. Um, and uh, you will, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain and the fact that in in uh, South Dakota, pe people are dying by thousands because we have yeah. a governor who said it's not real and still she's not doing anything. Same thing in Florida. So that's South what's happening. Florida, that's America place. today. Well, I know you've got another commitment, but we're going to be seeing you very soon on sunday as we're doing this recording uh you're going to be hopefully no we'll be we've confirmed this i guess yeah uh, coming in for our our group call everyone is super super excited make to have sure you by in. the way you uh you remind me of that time and and give me the coordinates and all the rest of it because i just want to make sure i don't screw it up and mix it up so, <laughs> you do that i thought i did that on wednesday or whatever did i did that before <laughs> yeah just remember yeah. With all this housebound COVID stuff, I literally don't even know what day of the week it is. <laughs> I mean, I have to ask Gene. And I say, you know, that you see those A&E programs of people in the emergency room. They're asking them basic questions to see if they've had bleed on the brain. <laughs> You're right. I'm failing all of damage. them. They're going to just say, <laughs> right. you know, this guy, this guy's either he's, he's an right Alzheimer off. patient, last stage Alzheimer, or he has a bleed on the brain because he doesn't know anything. He can't remember shit. So <laughs> don't count on me being there unless you tweet me or text me or email me a couple times saying now you know it is tomorrow and here's the time and <laughs> okay. here's the coordinate and here's the thing will do i will certainly get a hold of you well before in, in advance and let you know so thank you so much frank yeah my pleasure and i'll see you soon yeah awesome thanks